0: On BFBS
1: with This week a handover of command in Helmand.
2: For the last six months we have slept among Afghans, we've eaten beside them, we've fought alongside them, we've forged an extraordinarily close bond.
1: And fears a Syria ceasefire won't hold
2: the ceasefire is not upheld uh, over the coming days. We will want to
0: return to the Security Council and we will seek stronger sanctions.
1: This week has seen the formal handover of command of British operations in southern Afghanistan. 12th Mechanised Brigade has taken control from 20th Armoured Brigade, a changeover marked by a ceremony at Britain's headquarters in Helmand Lashkar Ghar. BFBS spoke to both the outgoing and incoming commanders of operations, with Brigadier Patrick Sanders saying he's seen extraordinary progress during his time in Afghanistan.
2: You see it in the levels of confidence that the people express. Afghan polling, and this isn't government polling, this is independent polling by Afghans, tells us that there is 90% confidence amongst the local population in the government of Afghanistan uh, and the Afghan army and the Afghan police. Uh, The levels of support for the Taliban have fallen by 50% down to only 7% of of the population down here. And places that were household names, uh, places like Babaji, very, very violent areas, very contested, you can now you now see children walking to school so there's a tangible difference that improvement has not come without sacrifice from British soldiers has it no it hasn't we've uh, we've taken um, we've taken casualties it's worth noting that we've had 30% fewer casualties than uh, than the, the previous brigade so the trend is, is downwards um, and that has been again because the Afghan, the afghans have taken the lead and because they know how to fight in afghanistan in a way that we can only really support, um, then uh, you know, it makes a real difference. One of the perceptions of what has happened in the last few
3: months of your tour is a spike in so-called green on blue attacks, insider attacks. We have seen an incident in Camp Bastion, we've sadly seen two killings outside the main gate at Lashkar Has that been a rising threat
2: that has had impact on the people and the job? No because it's so, so unrepresentative of our experience. I mean, it was as much of a shock to the Afghans that I deal with on a daily basis as it was to us, perhaps more so. I mean, they were mortified by what had happened, and from every level, from private Afghan warrior all the way up to general, uh, they've gone out of their way to, to try to, to make up to us, to, 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 to restore that, so what they perceive as lost in faith, but, but we don't. Um, for the last six months, we have slept among Afghans, we've eaten beside them, we've fought alongside them, we've forged an extraordinarily close bond.
1: That was the outgoing commander, Brigadier Patrick Sanders. Well Brigadier Doug Chalmers has now assumed command of Task Force Helmand.
0: Depending on the area, which district you're in and which sub-district, the level of threat or the level of Afghan capacity to continue to build the security is at variance. And my aim is to move some of those harder areas further on and transfer the lead across to an Afghan uh, security organisation.
3: For some people, there has been a concern in the last couple of months, and for families of those who've just come out here, about a perceived shift in threat, a spike in so-called green on blue attacks. There was an incident here at Lashka Gull. What do you say to those who have concerns about that proving an issue for your Herrick? I think
0: that there is an issue there, um, but what we've done is we've, we've, in our training, taken each one of those incidents and really pulled them apart to see what lessons can be learned. They're all isolated incidents. That's the first thing that's important to make, uh, to bring out. And we have put measures in place to try and prevent those incidents reoccurring.
1: That was Brigadier Doug Chalmers and James Hurst spoke to both Brigadiers and he joins us now from Camp Bastion. And also always with me here in the studio is BFBS's Defence Analyst Christopher Lear. Hello to both of you. James, uh, an interesting insight from Afghanistan looking back and going forward.
3: Yes, I think what is interesting about this handover and um, what both Brigadiers are saying is unlike previous handovers going back two three years we have a definitive end point now in 2014 a, a, an end point that was set out a couple of years ago but we're now actually on the path to reaching that path while f- not fully laid out is becoming clearer it is pretty much unstoppable and and what is one of the things they are trying to really push in this handover, is that actually it, it's not going to be a big change? There's not going to be a, a big new mission uh, to, to tackle something new. They they want a smooth continuity. I think there was also some clear acceptance in there that you know the challenges are not finished, not least because we are heading we, we're about at the end of the poppy harvest here and therefore the start of uh, in quotes fighting season. And I think a lot of people over the last year or so have said actually what happens in this summer here in Afghanistan is going to be quite telling, is going to be the test of what, what is seen by the numbers as good progress over the last couple of years. Do those statistical trends that suggest violence is falling, do they continue? And, and does it show that actually, you know, the, the path we are on is going to carry on in a straight line?
1: Uh, Christopher Lee, of course the political pressure is going to be on to talk about progress given this deadline. At what did you make of what the first brigadier, Brigadier Patrick Sands, the outgoing brigadier, what do you make of his figures? Is saying that 90% Afghan confidence in the government and the forces and the reduction in support for the Taliban?
4: Yeah, well, they're not his figures; they are Afghan figures. I think that's very important. Um, he talks about made a. I think he said uh, tangible di- uh, difference has been made. And effectively, you say, look, we we work and we sleep alongside these guys and, you know, things things are quite different. This is all very, very true. Um, And there's another side of this. You know, 400-plus British service people killed in this operation. Uh, Every single one a tragedy, yes. And I can sound terribly cynical here, but just put something in perspective. That's not many in a campaign like this. It's terrible. But it's not many. That shows, to some extent, overall, how successful the whole operation and the UK part of it, the British part of it, has been. There's one other thing. Uh, uh, Bo Rasmussen, the uh, NATO Secretary-General, is there at the moment. And he's saying, you know, we're all going off in 2014-15.
1: And it's on track, he's saying, today.
4: He's Well, you know, come on. Uh, we we the Two brigadiers could have been speaking from an MOD handout, quite frankly. We've heard all this sort of thing before. And... You know, it's, it's true, but it, there is nothing new coming out of this thing because we are on track. And one of the problems is that people are always looking for something new to be able to say uh, uh, about it. The big problem, the huge problem, is that, for example, the United States ain't budging at all at the moment because they're in an election year. Mm-hmm. When we get to our bit our pulling, withdrawal, whatever you like to call it, we are going to be in the election year and therefore there's going to be no change so the big thing is where is the british strategy after that or the nato strategy because the american strategy is clearly outlined or no not clearly clearly stated at the moment the problem is the british strategy isn't
1: okay okay james um you have been a couple of times to afghanistan in the last 18 months so just tell mm. us from your point of view have you seen a marked difference on the ground
3: well, as Christopher said, it, 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 it sounded terribly cynical that, that you know talking about that figure of, of four hundred um, and eight fatalities, and it does sound awful to to measure progress on numbers like that. But but the fact is, month on month for the last year, fatalities have been falling. It's not a perfect measure, but it is an indicator of progress in the campaign. In the snapshots I have seen. The the kind of progress that the brigadiers are talking about seems to ring true. Certainly, a month and a half, two months ago, going and seeing Afghans leading a small operation themselves with the British in support, and they were they were way ahead of the British. The British were planning to let a gap develop and hold back. Actually, the, the Afghans went up so fast. that it was hard to catch up with them and they didn't need to call on us and you talk to people I think this is a marked difference for me from last time when you when you talk to people away from the microphone there seems to be genuinely more faith in those Afghan forces and their ability to pick up and I was actually talking to a relatively senior officer today who uh, said was quoting I think a a general in, in in saying you know what The Afghans will never show you you the door if if they think you've still got something to give them. But actually, now that this end point is clear, they they do really seem to be stepping up to the plate and, and taking on the operations more and more themselves because they know they're going to have to. They don't do it the same way as the British, but they know their territory much better. And, you know, look at somewhere like Lashkar Ghar. Broadly, mm. it is holding, and it's been transitioned for some time. It's not perfect. There are security issues in Lashkar There may even have been some more stability, instability introduced, particularly in terms of British sort All of right. non-military operations. But it, it is progressing and holding, it seems.
1: All right. James Hurst and Camp Bastion, thank you for that. Sit Rep
5: with Kate oh.
1: Still to come this week, is progress finally being made in Syria and an insight into the military work on Ascension Island? There have been claims this week that there are thousands of military veterans suffering from undiagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder. But sometimes the symptoms are so bad they become impossible to ignore.
0: He's still hearing voices, he's still hallucinating, he's hyper alert, he's seeing shadows. You find him sat in his bedroom using blood as camouflage and hiding.
1: That was the father of Lance Corporal Liam Smith, who struggled with PTSD since 2007 when, aged 18, he was first deployed to Afghanistan with 2nd Battalion, the Mercian Regiment. Well, now one mental health charity is expressing particular concern over the welfare of personnel who serve more than one tour of Afghanistan. In a moment, we'll hear from that charity, Resolution Rebuilding Lives, which helps PTSD sufferers reintegrate into society. But first, Surgeon Captain Neil Greenberg is the Defence Professor of Mental Health based at King's College in London. He coordinates the mental health research for the armed forces and I spoke to him earlier.
6: Good research carried out in the UK in 2007 uh, basically showed that three quarters of people who um, had PTSD weren't getting help for it and the figures were the same whether you had served in the military or whether you never have.
1: PTSD quite often is left undiagnosed for perhaps 30 years, as we've seen with Falklands veterans. Um, How does the MOD view its responsibilities if perhaps people have left the armed forces when they're actually
6: diagnosed? Well, the MOD is responsible for people who are still serving, and they've taken a lot of efforts to try and um, both prevent PTSD uh, and other mental health problems and also try and detect it at an early stage.
1: What about if they've actually left?
6: Well once they've actually left the armed forces the Ministry of Defence itself is is not responsible for the healthcare provision for for veterans Um, what what does go on though is that um, as people are running up to their time of leaving they will have uh, amongst other things a discharge medical and at that medical um, the healthcare professional doing that will ask lots of questions and we have over the last year or so increased the number of questions that they ask about mental health issues. If people are identified um, at the time that they're going to leave the military as having a mental health problem we will carry on providing them with treatment for up to six months after they've left to make sure that we can get them the right treatment within the armed forces.
1: The modern British military is involved in far more operations than previous generations and there has been concern raised about repeated tours in Afghanistan. How does the MOD look to handle those kind of issues?
6: Well as you mentioned in, in introduction, I, I um, based at King's College London and um, the MOD have funded a very large and substantial um, study of Armed Forces personnel there which has been going on now since 2003-2004 and one of the uh, topics we've looked at is repeat tours because as you say it's an area of concern and actually what we find is that the more tours that people go on it, it is not associated with any deterioration in mental health
1: y- You've mentioned about uh, efforts to try and diagnose people earlier particularly if they're about to leave the forces. Uh, There's a lot of support from charities once people are out there in the community. Do you think anything else could be done to ease the problem? The public often perceive it that people who've served their country are often left out in the cold once they've left.
6: Well, um, the charitable sector, as you say, uh, provides a, a wide range of, of, of different groups who, who um, aim to try and help with mental health problems for veterans. One of the difficulties with the charitable sector is that many of them provide uh, non-evidence-based treatments. Um, and whilst they may or may not work, we just don't know because there's no evidence, the uh, National Health Service, as you'd be aware, uh, supports evidence-based interventions. And there are a couple of really good interventions that we know help people, whether they've served in the military or not, um, improve their mental health. And really what needs to happen is people, um, veterans or non-veterans who have mental health problems, need to come forward and get help uh, and to get the evidence-based interventions first before trying more uh, esoteric or, or strange interventions. W-
1: would you welcome a, a preferential treatment for people who serve served in the armed forces within the NHS?
6: Well there is already that uh, veterans um, who have health conditions related to their service are entitled to priority treatment in the NHS and basically that means that for the same level of priority they should go to the top of the waiting list.
1: Surgeon Captain Neil Greenberg who works with the MOD on mental health research while listening to that interview was Piers Bishop from the charity Resolution Rebuilding Lives. Welcome Piers. Um, What's your reaction to what the professor had to say?
7: Well which bit of it really? Um, Where do you want me to start? I'd like first of all to dispel the idea that we're doing anything esoteric or, or strange, the, uh, the recipe of, of therapeutic ingredients that we uh, encourage our people to use in, in resolution is exactly the same as that used in a number of other trauma-focused CBT interventions, with a couple of exceptions, one being that we don't ask people to repeat the story of what they've been through, because in our experience, most of the veterans, by the time they get to us, are so fed up to the back teeth of repeating that story, they really can't face doing it again. And another being that we keep people as calm as possible during any intervention that we do in order to reduce the chance of, of them actually becoming very wound up and, and suffering an un- unpleasant episode during treatment.
1: In, in terms of what's being offered by the MOD, what do you make of what he had to say about the, the increased efforts to diagnose it earlier, but also the transition period of about six months after someone leaves the forces to keep an eye on them? Is that is that enough? Should it go further? Should there be more checks?
7: It has to go further because, as anybody who works in the field will tell you, the, the average point at which people put their hand up and say, I have a problem is much, much, much later than that.
1: But if they're trying to spot it earlier, maybe that's maybe tackling the problem a little sooner and perhaps putting some of those cases Well, it, it might to help, fall. but you
7: have, you have to ask why do more people not put their hand up and say, I've got a problem while they're still in service. And part of the reason will be because they want to keep their job, of course, and they want to keep their, their promotion prospects. And, and part of the reason will be because they're still actually employed, they're still occupied, they're still doing things that are interesting and useful and tie up their mind and give their, give their life purpose day to day, and that will interfere with the development of post-traumatic symptoms. So uh, it's unlikely that people at the point of discharge, all of the people at the point of discharge who are going to have problems, will even realise that they have, no matter how many questions you ask them.
1: Christopher, do you buy the line that's often used that post-traumatic stress disorder is a ticking time bomb and uh, and also that this is something that should be dealt with uh, more seriously as a result
4: I think it is dealt with seriously yeah there's there's always a ticking time bomb in everybody's life I mean it's interesting that um, we're talking here of people with this stress who have served or they haven't served and also I mean it, it's important to understand that somebody who's been in say as I was in the Navy uh, could come up with something like a stress of some form much later and it's booked down to an instance that I may have witnessed, for example in Northern Ireland. And, and it, it may not be true. That's the whole point. Well, there are ways of finding out if it is true. Though. That's right and, you know, and there's, and there's Piers pointed out, and I think this is absolutely essential, is to re-examine sometimes the way that people get into, if you like, the personalities, so you don't go off and And say, now tell me, what do you think sort of uh, triggered this off? Because, you know, it doesn't work that way in people's minds.
1: Piers, how do you make the system better, though? Who should be looking after these people perhaps 30 years after they left the armed forces? Should it be the MHS? Should they be getting special treatment? And how do we make the service better?
7: one of the ways i think you can make the system better is to remove this emphasis on ptsd ptsd is a tightly defined and carefully defended scientific diagnostic category but real life is much much messier than that one of the things that comes regularly out of the mod and the defense analytical services agency is the statistic that ptsd is not the soldier's biggest problem or the 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 navy personnel members biggest problem The biggest problems are anger anxiety depression and so on and so on and so on but we ask the question if somebody's living well enough and then goes to afghanistan and sees things or does things that they subsequently find it impossible to deal with and then they start drinking or doing something else to excess are they traumatized Or are they a drinker? And we think if somebody's drinking or whatever to numb the pain of past events, then it often makes sense to do what you can about the pain of past events before you start worrying about the drinking. Because if you can remove the pain, then they may not drink so much to numb it. But all the time, the argument that the battle lines are drawn around whether somebody has PTSD or not, that isn't possible because some people will want to get the diagnosis in order to get compensation or an enhanced pension or a a defence in court. And and the the military and the government, the state in effect, will want to prevent as many people as possible getting a diagnosis of PTSD because it's expensive and because of the moral implications of taking people to war. Christopher Lee. Um, Piers, you, you can answer this better than I can but I've been approached in the
4: last couple of years, last, last 12 months really, to sort of take part in groups that are looking at this subject. Charities, in you know, trying to get charity foundation. And what bothers me that there are sometimes I think there are probably too many organisations um, that are doing this sort of thing without the expertise
7: that perhaps, the expertise that you're sort of uh, talking about today? I think Neil Greenberg's point, that there are a number of people offering exotic and esoteric interventions is probably valid, and it is something to worry about. I think if you're trying to get help, then you do need to make sure that, that, that what is being done is evidence-based. But I would, on that note, point out that the best evidence comes from the patient, not from the average of a large number of patients, which is what the NHS and the National Institute of Clinical Excellence use. So, yes, um, you should go to an organisation that offers in- evidence-based interventions, but also you should, if something doesn't work, you should try something else. Because the same things don't work for everybody. And the thing that works for the average of all people will not necessarily work for you.
1: All right. Piers Bishop from the charity Resolution Rebuilding Lives. Thank you very much for your time today. BFBS. (laughs) The international community is waiting to see whether Syrian government forces and armed opposition rebels will observe a ceasefire that came into force earlier today. The international envoy Kofi Annan proposed the truce to end more than a year of fighting in which thousands of people have been killed. Britain has said it will offer more assistance to the rebels if the ceasefire does not hold. Christopher, has anything really changed?
4: Well, it has changed in as much that there is apparently a bit of a ceasefire. But let's, let's put this in perspective. Um, what is a ceasefire? Um, is that all we're going to do? Now, what do we expect to happen? The purpose of a ceasefire is obviously to stop, stop shooting each other. But the one group that has most to lose on this and therefore could break it are some of the groups within the opposition and it's the opposition that is far more likely to break a ceasefire enough for the Syrians to say, right, uh, we're, we're being attacked and therefore we can break it. The other thing to remember is um, is opportunity for the Syrians to regroup, especially four-division. Four-div has taken quite a pounding. It's been exercised quite a lot too much, in fact.
1: The military forces that are run by uh, Assad's brother, is Assad, yes.
4: Uh, Assad's brother. The other thing is, then what do you do once you've got a ceasefire? Now, the opposition is saying, oh, we've got a ceasefire, but we still want Assad and co. to go. Now, that's not going to happen at this rate. So let's not get too caught up with a ceasefire. Then we have something else hanging over us, and that is Turkey. And the position of Turkey is extraordinarily important here. I mean, along the border, or just within the Turkish border, there are seven camps. Now, some of those camps are actually used by Syrians to go and hide out and then go back and fight. Now, the Syrians are starting to take pot shots, perhaps, at some of the areas within those camps, as well as just outside of them. And that puts Turkey in a very difficult position.
1: Indeed. Well, joining us now is John Marks, the chairman and founder of Cross-Border Information, a business intelligence and consultancy company which researches the Middle East. John, thanks for your time today. How much pressure do you think the UN can put on Syria without moving towards any kind of military action?
5: Well at the moment what we're seeing is only the limited capacity for pressure and that probably being uh, applied by two of the permanent um, permanent Security Council members who'd be Russia and China. I think the conventional wisdom that you know the sanctions um, other forms of pressure applied by the West have only got uh, limited play. So there isn't a great deal of uh, that, that actually more that can be done. Um, clearly, the fact there was pressure has allowed us to get to this ceasefire. Whether the ceasefire holds, of course, is a completely another uh, question. But whether there's actually still the appetite to go to, to forces, highly questionable. Force is probably the only way to resolve this issue, but it may be in the long term rather than the short.
1: Kofi Annan has been in Iran uh, this week to discuss Syria. How key is that country to making any progress?
5: I think what we are seeing in the Syrian conflict is confirmation that the balance of forces globally has changed. We've got Saudi Arabia and... Um, Qatar saying they will provide arms, although that hasn't happened yet. We've got Turkey as the central player and not just because it's Syria's neighbour. And here we have Iran, a country that does have the potential to um, exert influence over the Syrians and does seem to have actually led them towards the ceasefire this week. So Iran is an important player, but clearly it finds itself outside the general concept of, 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 uh, of
1: nations. Indeed. So, Indeed, and it also finds itself the subject of an international summit in Turkey this weekend about its nuclear ambitions, um, primarily. But Syria also will be discussed, no doubt.
5: Uh, some, summit and sanctions. It's um, it's the Iranian way. The summit is important, although, again, can one be optimistic about the likely result? Well, probably not. But it is important. We haven't seen the the international powers, the Security Council six, sitting down around the table with the Iranians for over a year. Last time, of course, they did sit down. They sat down and they got up pretty quickly afterwards. They couldn't even agree an agenda. But the fact is, it is important because, because again, on the Iranian nuclear issue, there are signs once more that the the, the war drums are beating, the Israelis are, are, are signaling that they may be thinking about a military uh, response, although I think that's still relatively doubtful. I think what the news about the upcoming is, I think is that for the, um, the international powers will be able to test out whether the Iranians position is changing over its own nuclear program and indeed over the wider region They're trying to test to what degree have the Iranians got an appetite for conflict at the moment. And we see divisions within the Iranian top team that suggests that Mm. appetite for conflict may not be quite as great as it was a year ago. But the summit will allow us to at least gauge that. It may be an academic in point, but it's important for geopolitics.
1: All right. John Marks, chairman of Cross Border Information. Thank you very much for your time today. Now, how would you fancy a tour of duty on a tropical island so secure nobody ever has to stand guard? Plus, there are beautiful deserted beaches, a duty-free bar and pretty much year-round sunshine. That's life for the handful of RAF and army personnel who run a mid-Atlantic staging post of Ascension Island that's proved a vital link for British forces since long before the Falklands War. Our reporter Jeff Mead has been there and joins us now. Jeff. Um who did you get to speak to?
0: Kate, pretty much everybody. I mean, it's mm. that kind of place. There are just uh, 18 uh, uniformed UK personnel there. Uh, it's, a, it's a very intimate, relaxed sort of posting. Uh, because there are so few of them, they all eat together in a combined mess. Um, and, you know, they, they work hard when the planes come in and out and everybody who knows that, has done that shuttle to the South Atlantic, knows that you get off for about an hour and a half and you spend time in a, a little uh, passenger compound there. But there's much more to it than that. Um, the forces come Commanded by Wing Commander Stuart Andrews, uh, he's in charge of, as I say, the 18 uh, RAF and Army personnel and 200-odd supporting contract workforce. But seriously talking to him, he indicated that should essentially again have to support a military operation, say to retake the Falklands, we shouldn't be misled by today's relatively relaxed lifestyle.
3: A dream location, but we are here doing a a core military function. Uh, The team that I have here are working very hard to support the South Atlantic Islands. Our routine business is handling the South Atlantic Airbridge, but we also stand by to act as a a staging post and a forward mounting base for any operations either focused south or indeed in other areas of the South Atlantic. If I can sort of describe it as part of the body, um, whilst we might not be the teeth Uh, nor the heart. We're certainly one of the arteries that keeps the South Atlantic Islands running.
0: Well, the senior British NCO on Ascension today is RF Warrant Officer Duncan Andrews, they're not related, and few know the place better. He's on his fifth tour, having first served there back in 1983, when the base was busy helping garrison and secure the newly liberated Falklands.
8: We worked uh, a shift pattern of two days, two nights, two off, Um, and in that 12-hour sort of shift that uh, we'd probably expect to see maybe three or four um, as a minimum aircraft from the UK. And in those days we had things like the um, the chartered Belfasts, we had the uh, TriStars occasionally, uh, VC-10s, C-130s, and obviously we supported the C-130 um, on its regular flights down to uh, Stanley Airport. Every single flight um, it was it, it was vital that we got the maximum use of the payload on the aircraft, um, that we, we sorted the stores out quickly, that the passengers were, were quickly dealt with. Because of the distance, because of the short runway at Stanley at the time, um, many of our passengers disembarked here and then were moved by helicopter out to ships. And we used to also do um, underslung loads for for the baggage and for stores to, to go onto those ships.
1: So, Jeff, a fascinating trip for you, and hints that the island could be used again in a similar way to 30 years ago.
8: Yes, it's
0: much bigger now. Uh, It's about half as big again, the the aircraft handling area. so It's got a massive runway. It's about a mile and a half long. It was a reserve uh, landing site for the space shuttle. Uh, So plenty of room, but, of course, far fewer personnel. They had 500 military personnel in the 80s, 18 now, so there would be a logistics effort to to gear it up. But the hope and expectation is, of course, there'd be plenty of warning time to make those preparations.
1: Christopher, your experience, of the Ascension
4: Islands. It used to be run by Pan Am, you know. Unbelievable. Uh, Yeah, it used to be run by Pan Am and the Americans. It was the Americans who used it, not so much us. In fact, if you wanted to go to war again, you have to ask the Americans to do it. My experience, the first experience of it, was landing there sometime at night with the then Defence Secretary, Michael Heseltine, who was a great bird watcher, a twitcher, that is, not the other sort. And (laughs) and I I, I get a shake at 5 o'clock in the morning to come and see some sorty terms or something like this. (laughs) A whole colony of sooty terns. So there I am, matchsticks to the eyelids, <laughs> looking at these sooty terns doing whatever sooty terns do at 5 o'clock in the morning. And Michael Heslok saying, do you think that's wonderful? OK, off we go. Falkland's next stop.
1: The story is wonderful in itself. Thank you very much. My thanks to Chris Lee and all of our guests and Jeff Mead, of course. If you have any views on the topic we've covered or anything else you think we should be talking about, get in touch. Our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com. Thanks for listening and we'll be back again same time next week. Bye-bye for now.